from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Kurds in Iran are estimated to number between 10 to 12 million, comprising 12 to 15 percent of the total population of Iran. After Persians and Azeris, Kurds are the third largest national groups in Iran. The Kurds in Iran have a long history of a struggle for self-determination that extends decades before the 1979 revolution. In his article in the Middle East Research and Information Project, Sardar Saadi refers to one of the episodes in this struggle when he writes, quote, In 1946, with the direct help of the Soviet Union, Kurds established their own autonomous republic centered in the city of Mahabad. Although the Kurdish Republic of Mahabad only lasted 11 months, it became a shining example of Kurds successfully ruling themselves and marks the advent of modern nationalism in Kurdistan. Shahram Agamir spoke with Sardar about the Kurdish struggle for self-determination in Iran. Sardar Saadi is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Toronto and host and producer of the Kurdish Edition podcast. Shahram started by asking Sardar about the Kurdish word Rojalat. The Kurds refer to the Kurdish region of Iran as Rojalat instead of Iranian Kurdistan. Rojalat, meaning the place where the sun rises, refers to the eastern portion of Kurdistan, the Kurdish homeland that stretches across four countries of Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. One of the main issues that right now uh, many people in Kurdish studies are dealing with is how to decolonize Kurdish studies. And in Kurdish studies, the terminology that is used to describe the, the Kurdish people, the Kurdish population widespread in uh, four or five countries of the Middle East, they usually refer to them as in different terms like Iranian Kurdistan, Turkish Kurdistan, or the Kurdish region of Iran, the Kurdish region of Iraq, or northern Iraq, or south or southwestern parts of Turkey, or northwest of Syria. And we see that used by media, by academic scholars who are working in Kurdish studies. And this regards the, this recent through three decades, this nomenclature that has come to occupy the, the terminology of the way that the Kurds describing their own territorial places where they live. So in Rojalat, which is the Iranian part of Kurdistan, western and northwestern parts of Iran, this uh, terminology came to use by the late 1990s and especially after the expansion of the politics of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, in other parts of Kurdistan. Bakur is the northern part of Kurdistan, which is south and southeast of Turkey. Bashur is northern part of Iraq, which is south part of Kurdistan. And these words also literally mean east, west, south, uh, north. And finally, Rojava, which is the Syrian part of Kurdistan, and it is the northern western parts of that country. And Rojava also means west. So we saw this expansion, especially after the use of new mediums and mass media in Kurdistan, 
many TVs, especially in early 2000s, but it was first started by Met TV, this uh, satellite TV that started in 1995 in Europe by the PKK. And in the absence of any medium, there was like, of course, uh, radios with many parasite waves uh, put by the Iranian regime. But so satellite TV was something very, very new and people were extremely excited. And the PKK was using this terminology to describe Kurdistan, basically to bring in an anti-colonial discourse into how the Kurds are describing themselves and uh, connect themselves to each other as one entity. And how widespread is this terminology among the Kurds inside Iran? As I said, by the late 1990s, but right now everyone is basically using it. And at that time, I remember during the protests in 1999 against the abduction of the PKK's leader Abdullah Jalal in Tehran, in many cities of Kurdistan and Roshalat. This was one of the slogans that the people were saying, which means uh, north, south, east, one homeland, one struggle. And it was uh, after that that Rosh Halat and other names for other parts of Kurdistan were used based on this PKK-affiliated political perspective. But right now, it is completely widespread and people refer to different parts of Kurdistan in different countries by this terminology. So I can say that right now, this is part of the everyday language. This has been kind of, quote-unquote, normalized among the Kurds to talk about the different parts of Kurdistan in those terms. You, as well as other analysts and scholars, identify two distinct projects with respect to the Kurdish question in Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. You characterize these two projects as unitary nationalism in the case of the Kurdistan democratic parties and a radical left paradigm of democratic confederalism in the case of Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, and I think PYD in Syria. Before we talk about the Kurds in Rojalat, the Kurdish region of Iran, and where they stand vis-à-vis these two discourses, can you briefly explain to us what these two projects stand for? Right. So when you look at the rise of nationalism and nationalist uh, political movement in Kurdistan, you see this uh, very influential role that traditional groups of people, leaders of people in Kurdistan are involved. So these traditional people could be religious leaders in the case of many sheikhs and sayyids or in the case of many tribe leaders so many aghas the early leaders of this kurdish nationalist movement so we have sheikh abidullah gilani in the shamdina part of turkey and also the margawar tagawar part of urmia in iran in Boshalat, in the western azerbaijan province who started basically the first nationalist, Kurdish nationalist movement. And then with the rise of many different groups, many different political movements in Iraq, in Iran, and in Turkey, we see the role that these religious leaders are playing, such as Sheikh Said in Turkey, Said Reza in Turkey, and also in Iraq, Sheikh Mahmoud. And then we have Mala Mustafa Barzani that is coming from this tradition, who's the leader of the tribe, his tribe Barzan. 
And in Iran, we have the first modern nationalist movement that was led by Qazi Muhammad in Mahabad 1946 and became the Republic of Kurdistan in Mahabad. So these people are coming from this traditional side of the Kurdish society. And then the first Kurdistan Democratic Party was established actually before the Republic of Kurdistan in Mahabad that was led by these traditional leaders of Kurdish society around Mahabad. So many tribe leaders, many Aghas, many feudal and some religious leaders, they were part of them. They were landlords. And major landlords, exactly. Mullah Mustafa Barzani was also part of that. He was a general in Mahabad. So the Kurdistan Democratic Party is established with this tradition. But then it was seriously challenged by the rise of the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, which is Jalal Talabani. This uh, group of Jalal Talabani and his uh, comrades, his friends, they started this kind of revolt against Barzani in end of 1960s, early 1970s, and they separated from them. And in Iran, we saw the rise of this leftist Komala party. But then they also became part of this traditional nationalist movement in Kurdistan until the rise of the PKK that was established in 1978 in Turkey, but then the idea was to create an independent socialist Kurdistan coming from a strong leftist history in Turkey, very solid communist background, anti-colonial background, using Fanon, using Mao, and using all the leftist discourses that was there among the Turkish left. And then by the end of 1990s, the PKK became quite widespread all over the Kurdistan, and 2004, 2005, we can probably talk about that in detail later, democratic confederalism, the theory by Ojalan, kind of more leaning toward anarchist ideas of grassroots democracy and gender liberation and preservation of environment, cooperative communal economy. So this started to become very prominent in Kurdistan and in Rojava, it also gained a very important place in Turkey since 1999. It was uh, its municipal control of the parties that are close to PKK. They controlled all the municipalities, city councils. So they became this alternative political vision where the Kurds can guarantee their rights, uh, can achieve their rights through this more leftist way of seeing what kind of Kurdistan we can create. This was seriously against a vision that the Kurdistan Democratic Parties had for Kurdistan. And we have many different Kurdistan Democratic Parties in all four parts of Kurdistan. And right now, except for some parties, and of course the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, we see this hegemonic power that Barzani and the Kurdistan Democratic Parties has on the nationalist movement in Kurdistan against this, uh, the PKK's paradigm of democratic confederalism that also tries to build this entity for Kurdistan, but not in a way that this traditional nationalist political movement is envisioning. This is the difference that we can actually go deeper in the traditional democratic parties, the way they approach the gender question, the way they approach environment question, the way they approach economy, society, 
and all of the corruptions that we see in Iraq and Kurdistan, that these parties have become mafia groups that are controlling resources and economy, the state in Iraq and Kurdistan. It seems to me like one is still a national liberation project that belongs to the anti-colonialist era and liberation movements that are struggling against colonialist rules. It seems like the PKK project is more in line with our current times. In other words, it's not the age of national liberation movements any longer. You're talking about a hegemonic domination of global capital. That seems to be more in tune with the current realities. Yeah, I agree with that. Many nationalist groups, they would say that in the example of this Trumpist argument for America first, how other big powers like Russia and uh, other countries around the world, like Turkey right now is becoming a sub-imperialist force in the Middle East region, they are emphasizing on their nation, on their national values and national history, and basically fighting against all other minorities, national groups, immigrants, and disregarding any rights, for example, in Turkey for Kurds, or in the UK against the immigrants, or in, in the United States against the Mexicans, or against people who are coming from Latin America against Muslims. So we see this nationalist discourse continuing, and many Kurds, they say, well, while the whole world is going in this direction, why should we talk about alternative, beautiful future for our nation, for our region? So there is a big challenge in front of the PKK to convince and to mobilize the Kurdish people to follow this project. In Nations and Nationalism since 1780, British historian Eric Hobsbawm points out the social engineering which enters into the making of nations. He quotes from a seminal work by Ernest Geller, Nations as a natural God-given way of classifying men as an inherent political destiny or a myth. Nationalism which sometimes takes pre-existing cultures and turns them into nations, sometimes invents them and often obliterates pre-existing cultures. That is a reality. And that's the end of the quote. Hobsbawm's basic conclusion is that for the purpose of this analysis, nationalism comes before nations. Nations do not make states and nationalism, but the other way around. How useful is this analysis when you look at the formation of the modern state in Iran and the notion of Persian nationalism, as well as the emergence of Kurdish nationalism inside Iran? I think it is an extremely useful theoretical perspective. It is actually a tool to analyze nationalist movements and the way nation-states have been formed throughout the world, but especially in the Middle East. And I'm personally using this very powerful quote that nations do not make states and nationalism, but the other way around. And we see in the example of Turkey, that Turkish nationalism created this nation, for example, before coming to Iran, out of the leftovers of Ottoman Empire. And it was meant to dismantle, to clear out, to kill, to massacre, to assimilate any other national subject or people who are unfit for this category of modern Turkish citizen. In Iran, we see the same process with Reza Shah, 
I think before Reza Shah, we have this constitutional revolution in Iran in 1905 to 1911. Started this uh, century of political upheaval that continues until now. In 1925, Reza Khan overthrew the last king of the Qadar dynasty. He was very much assisted by Britain against the rise of the Soviet Union at that time after the October Revolution. So Reza Khan, that became Reza Shah Pahlavi, had these three pillars of building this nation in Iran. And they were personalization of the country, centralization, and westernization. And the first one was Persianization, right? It meant basically a campaign of assimilation, a ban on Kurdish language and publication. And there were some other aspects of this westernization, especially Kashfi Hijab. It was basically unveiling the national campaign against the traditional clothes that in Kurdistan there was actually an uprising by Manal Khalil Gouramari, a religious leader. The main line of his campaign, his uh, uprising, was to protect the traditional clothes for religious leaders, for, for the Kurds, and especially for women. So a lot of this conservative pushbacks against Reza Khan was also mixed with the cultural assimilation campaign that he was pushing. And he was not successful, like Turkey, because Iran had a different strategic place in the region and Reza Khan was uh, basically a puppet in the hands of Britain. And we see that in 19, was in 1941 that he was basically ousted. So in Iran, it was a different story than Turkey, but the same project of nation building was about this Persian nationalism, this Iranian nationalism supported by the force of army going to different regions, different parts of country, trying to bring them together to create this uniform identity, which speaks in Farsi, dresses as this Western code of dress, this centralization that many Kurdish provinces, many Kurds for years were enjoying this relative autonomy in their region with this Emirates they have, like some of this power was shared with uh, tribal leaders, with landowners. And of course, it was a very conservative and traditional society. But centralization meant to dismantle everything that pre-existed before the rise of Reza Shah. What about the emergence of Kurdish nationalism inside Iran? As I said, Sheikh Abdullah Gilani, we see the rise of this political movement in Kurdistan that has been identified as the first nationalist movement. I think it was end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century. We know that during that time, there was a very important war taking place between the Ottoman Empire and Russia that caused the destruction of many parts of Kurdistan and Armenia and northern parts of Iran as well. During that war, we see the rise of this Armenian also identity claims or the territory. And Sheikh Uydallah Gilani wanted to create this independent Kurdistan. Of course, in terms of territory, it was very limited to his own areas, the border corner of Turkey with Iran and Iraq. So he wanted to create this Kurdish state for the Kurds in that area. And he started this uprising. He was not successful. 
And we see the rise of nationalism after that. But I want to say that with the invention of nation states in the Middle East, the rise of Kurdish nationalism was actually not so much about inventing the nation state. Many Kurdish nationalists did want to build this independent Kurdistan, but it was more or less against this violent, aggressive nationalist campaigns by central governments in Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. So it would be fair to say it was a response to emergence or rise of nationalism in Turkey and Iran among the dominant groups. Kurdish nationalism, by nature, is uh, some sort of defense, some sort of resistance. Maybe some scholars would disagree with me. It is not as uh, aggressive and as affirmative campaign of nation-building as we see in the example of Persian nationalism in Iran and Turkish nationalism in Turkey, but more like a resistance against annihilation, these assimilation campaigns against the Kurds. It has been about preserving Kurdish culture, relative autonomy, Kurdish language, and even Kurdish independence has been some sort of motivation to mobilize the Kurds, but at the end, no political movement in Kurdistan has uh, really followed through this idea of building a nation-state for the Kurds. Of course, between 1918 to 1923 that we have the Lausanne Agreement, Kurds were trying to convince the Western powers, the global powers, to give them their own state. Sharif Pasha, we know that during the Severe Treaty, try to convince the Western powers to give Kurds an entity, and they agreed. There was like some sort of agreement about giving the Kurds some parts of southwestern Turkey and northern Iraq. But in Iran, there has never been this kind of political movement to build a Kurdish nation-state. And we can, of course, talk about some of the examples, like the Kurdistan Republic of Mahabad, the uprisings after the Iranian Revolution 1979 and others. In your article in Merib, you argue that even though an independent homeland may live in the Kurdish collective imaginary, it is autonomy and not independence that has been the dominant demand of the Kurdish movement in all four regions of Kurdistan. You continue by saying that among the Kurds in Iran, even though the demand for Kurdish autonomy persists, but most Kurdish political parties have merged this demand into proposals for a federal system within Iran. What are the characteristics of such a structure and how does this model compare with the one advocated by Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK in Turkey, or uh, the main Syrian Kurdish organization, the Democratic Union Party, PYD? We need to look at the uh, different proposals that are on the table by different political parties, Kurdish parties, main ones like the two Kurdistan Democratic Parties and their Komala parties that are following with this model. But some of the main demands are basically, as I said, this relative autonomy for Kurdistan, preserving Kurdish culture, education in mother tongue in Kurdi. Kurdish being part of the official system of education and documentation in Iran, along with other 
languages spoken in Iran among different national groups. So these are some basic characteristics of this proposal, this federal structure. And of course, it comes with the proposal of democracy for Iran. Without a democratic system, a federal system cannot live, of course. And as you remember, Dr. Qasem Do, beginning of the Kurdish uprising in the aftermath of the Iranian revolution, 1979, the main demands were democracy for Iran, autonomy for Kurdistan. But right now, the federal system is not focusing just on Kurdistan, but also on different parts of Iran, uh, giving this multi-national, multi-cultural, multi-religious nature of the country. What is the difference uh, between this system and what the PKK is proposing is basically that the PKK wants to build up this system, this democratic confederal system from the bottom and not giving so much power to the central state, not recognizing so much power to central state and the way representative democracy is working. So as we see in Rojava, this is kind of a similar project that the PKK-affiliated Kurdish parties in Iran, Hajak and Kodar, they are proposing that the society needs to decide and to go with what kind of political system they want. And this starts from neighborhoods, this starts from all the villages, it starts from the very, very basic cells of this society, and they will propose what they want. So cultural rights education in modern time, and all of those demands that we see in different identity groups in Iran and popular among the Kurdish, other Kurdish uh, position groups, kind of similar. But the approach is different. The Kurdish traditional nationalist groups, they do not have this clear proposal for gender liberation, for the relationships between different parts of the society, as class divisions. The question of religion and how you're going to deal with this uh, more conservative parts of society that are preventing you from proposing more radical reforms. For example, like in terms of the LGBTQ community or in terms of different uh, religious practices in a society that we know is, generally speaking, conservative, even though it has changed a lot. So the approach here is very different. And the opposition parties' federal model is a kind of proposal to go to the central state, whatever the state is. Let's say in a post-Islamic Republic Iran, you have a state, so this goes to the state, hey, give us this federal system. Of course, there is a struggle behind it, but the way that the PKK is proposing is to build up these communities, these groups, these grassroots organizations, and all the power must be recognized for them. Uh, and it is based on this uh, very progressive paradigm of democratic confederalism. It's basically a model based on direct democracy and sort right. of a participatory yes. democracy. It's bottom-up instead of top-down. While some of these other models, federalist models, proposed by these other parties, Essentially, they have their roots in some sort of a liberal democratic discourse. Yeah, but all of those Kurdish opposition parties, you see 
Komala, the Communist Party of Iran, led by Mr. Ibrahim Alizada, which is the most radical group among uh, the four Komalas who basically separated from the main group. And then we have this social democratic background that Qasemlu, Dr. Abdurrahman Qasemlu, brought into uh, democratic, uh, Kurdistan Democratic Party of Iran, which is right now two groups, and they are also coming from this leftist discourse. But we see that in all of these changes in the region and the uh, social and political transformations that we are seeing, in many of those groups, this leftist politics has remained to discourse, has remained to propaganda, and in many cases we see strong objection against the PKK and democratic confederalism. And in many of the social media accounts of these parties, they are calling out the PKK as this leftist communist group that uh, do not care about the future of Kurdistan, except for the Komala of Mr. Ram Aliazada, of course. So we see this clash between these two different approaches, this clash between how the future of Kurdistan as part of these countries could be established. But the main point is here that most of these groups, they do not want this different separate entity, at least for now. But ideologically, the PKK is more in line into a social and political transformation in the whole region. But these groups, Kurdish opposition groups, coming from this unitary nationalism based on Kurdish rights, Kurdish question, uh, except for Komala of Mr. Amaliyazad, of course. That is Sardar Saadi speaking with Shahram Agamir about the Kurdish struggle for self-determination in Iran that extends decades before the 1979 revolution. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Komala comes from a background of uh, being Marxist-Leninist party. You underscore the multi-ethnic and multi-religious fabric of Iran and how, how such a composition demands a solution that encompasses all identity groups. And you basically suggest that the political strategy of uh, federalism supported by the Kurds and others is mainly a response to this need. What are your thoughts on the other factors that might have played a role convincing many Kurds in Iran to pursue the strategy of federalism? These are pragmatic considerations. To name two of them, the resilience of the state and the central government in Iran that has been withstanding the centrifugal forces and the pressure from below, both under the current regime and the monarchy for nearly a century. Also, the specific demographics of certain areas, such as western part of Azerbaijan, which has a significant Azerbaijani population and non-Kurdish population, not having a monolithic population could complicate the birth of a Kurdish autonomous region. 
in this area? You know, Iran is one of those countries that has different national groups, and this comes from the history of the Iranian empire and like continuation of this territorial integrity where different groups, different national groups were kind of mainly encompassed in this nation state after the rise of nation states in the region. So we see this special case. Iran could be compared to many countries, but we know that in Yugoslavia, this multinational country basically dismantled and we saw this blood, massacres, genocides taking place in the former Yugoslavia and this separation and invention of different countries. The example of Soviet Union, different countries, different national groups, they had this experience of autonomy for for decades. So creation of all of those nation states was not as complicated as uh, in other places. So Iran is one of those countries, maybe one of the last remaining countries where different national groups are living together, are composing this complicated fabric of this country. So why the federal system could be the response that we are looking for is that basically these groups are in different parts of the country, different territorial borders kind of separating different ethnic groups, as you said, different different national groups. And by giving a relative autonomy, this provincial autonomy, and recognizing their culture, their language, and envisioning a different Iran, a democratic Iran, with all of them together, is of course so many Iranians wish. But politically and in reality on the ground, as you said, there are so many things that could complicate such a project. And as you said, in Western Azerbaijan, for example, the province, we have Kurds and Azeris. And most of the Kurds are Sunni in that province, and most of Azeris are Shia. Despite that, people in cities and villages of uh, Western Azerbaijan, they have so many connections, familial connections, uh, historical connections set uh, together, very deep roots. In my family, we have these uh, familial connections, like getting a bride or giving a bride to Azeri people in, in the province. And people are kind of more integrated than what we are hearing from this ultra-nationalist rhetoric. And in the example of the, both the Republic of Kurdistan, Mahabad, and the Republic of Azerbaijan, 1946, we saw this collaboration. And like the first Kurdish radio in Iran was established in Tabriz by the, the Republic of Azerbaijan. So there was this political connection. It was, of course, because of this socialist agenda that the Soviet Union put forward and behind those two republics. But people have very fond memories about those times. We have many Kurdish poems, stories about this relationship with Azerbaijan, with Turks, and we have some of this very amazing Azerbaijani poets like Ali Rizan Nabdel, for example, who has poems supporting the Kurdish struggle for self-determination. But this complication is, of course, could be very fragile when we see how much the Turkish government is trying to kind of initiate this uh, ethnic tension between uh, the Turks and Kurds. 
in Urmie, for example, and some other cities of northern part of the western Azerbaijan, because southern part, the Mukrian part, is mainly Kurdish populated. So the, the northern part, we see this mix, mix of Kurdish and Turkish cities and even villages. And when it comes to territorial claims, we definitely going to see some tensions. And a federal system should not be about who controls this village or this farm or this city, but how we are going to live together without anyone trying to disregard or to eliminate the other one's right to their culture, or to their language, to their, to their living conditions, to their social and cultural codes of conduct. I think this is the main point, but I don't want to be naive, and I can totally see that there might be a lot of tensions between different ethnic groups, but the main issue is how the central government, which is controlled by majority Persian Shia population in Iran, is also trying to play with this ethnic cards in different parts, and especially the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Islamic regime, is trying to do that. And before that, Mahmoud Reza Shah also tried to do this, to raise this tension to basically divide and rule. Another thing is that right now, many Kurds, like many of my family members, they live in Tehran. Many Kurds, they live in main cities because of economic reasons. We have a large population of Kurds in Khorasan, in northern Khorasan province. And different cities in Tabriz, which is a central city for Azerbaijan Turks, there are many Kurds. So when it comes to this political system, whatever the future of Iran is like, in some parts it is of course about territory, but in most of the cases it's about what kind of democratic system we can build together. Because uh, with multinational and multi-ethnic, multi-religious character of Iran, we have Baluchi, we have Arabs, we have Turkmen, we have Kurds, we have Azeri, we have Fars, and in Persian in Fars nation community, we have different groups, like ethnic groups, like Gilag. So how all of that are going to have a peace, a territorial peace, and the future of Iran is very, very complicated. For the Kurds in Iran, the struggle for self-determination has a long history that predates the 1979 revolution. The Kurds in Iran revived their struggle for self-determination during the Iranian revolution when they demanded cultural and administrative autonomy for the Kurdish region. What can you tell us about the Kurdish grassroots movements in those early months of the revolution? And how did the new ruling bloc and the central state react to those initiatives? So it was just very few months. And during this early months of the revolution, there was an absence of nation state. And as soon as there is an absence of nation state rule, the people can organize themselves, set up their consuls, their, their communes, and many grassroots organizations, and especially in urban centers of uh, Kurdistan, and they try to manage their everyday life, also participate in political process of building this new society after the revolution. So we have like a number of women organizations, labor organizations, cultural centers, many publications. They flourished all over 
many cities of Kurdistan. And this, of course, did not last long. And the newly established Islamic Republic, they attacked Kurdistan right after basically coming back together. And the first campaign was to reoccupy Kurdistan. And through that, all of those organizations, those centers, these groups were dismantled. And in many cases, some of those groups were affiliated with political uh, Kurdish political parties. And the response that they got from the government was a military campaign, as Khomeini said, was going to cleanse Kurdistan. Exactly. And it was all-out war, including air raids on Kurdish cities, right? Exactly. And uh, since then, Kurdistan has become very militarized, very uh, securitized. And while there was some level of resistance in the cities, urban warfare between the Kurdish political parties and the Iranian state, by the end of the day, the Kurdish fighters, Kurdish political parties, all the groups, they were not just Kurdish. Many Iranian groups, especially leftist groups, had come to Kurdistan to find a refuge against the Islamic regime in the center. And to be fair, they supported the cause. They went to Kurdistan as a matter of solidarity with the Kurdish struggle because they did recognize the right for self-determination for national groups. They did, yes. Of course, during that time, the right for self-determination, I think more than that, it was more about how the future of this country is going to shape after the revolution. And the Kurdish demands were mainly around this democracy for Iran and autonomy for Kurdistan. Like having, preserving this autonomous entity that Kurds had built in the aftermath of the revolution. Essentially a federalist structure, if you like. The term federalism is quite new right, uh, right. in Kurdistan. But that time it was more about autonomy. And right. autonomy, it was coming from this leftist tradition, especially in the Soviet Union, that these different uh, national groups must have their autonomous entities. They need to uh, take care of their own affairs and uh, preserving a language and culture, etc. They had to live to the mountains, uh, and many uh, left to Iraqi Kurdistan mountains, to Bashur, uh, some mountains of Roshalat. And gradually, most of them left the region to Europe, North America, and Australia. Just to be clear, the demand of the Kurdish political parties and the Kurdish populace in general in that region was not to secede from the entity called Iran. They were asking no. for autonomy, regional autonomy. That's true. There was no demand for secession, no demand of, for separation. Even until now, there's probably one or two marginal groups that they talk about independent Kurdistan. But as I said in the article, independent Kurdistan, of course, it remains in the imaginary of the Kurds as this entity, this country for the Kurds where they, they are free, they can have their own national identity. But politically, none of these opposition groups from both sides, the PKK and the traditional nationalist groups or even the leftist groups, none of them propose separation 
secession from Iran. Nevertheless, the power bloc that emerged out of the revolutionary movement, the one who controlled power, decided to quash that movement using violence, essentially. Sardar, in your Merip article, you write, although the Islamic Republic added Shia Islam to the pre-existing ethno-national features of the Pahlavi state that privileged Persian identity, Kurdish resistance to the newly politicized religious identity was not based on the fact that half of the um, Kurdish population was Sunni Muslim. Instead of relying on the Shia-Sunni dichotomy for an explanation, you say that the Kurdish movement objection to the Islamist nature of the new regime should be ascribed to a secular religious divide. Can you elaborate? Sure. So most of the political groups, they kind of agreed on Khomeini's leadership because the goal was clear to topple the monarchy system of Mohammad Zashar Pahlavi. But with the rise of this Islamic discourse and just a few weeks after the success of the revolution, Khomeini decided there was this referendum on the constitution or to declare if Islamic Republic is the correct political form for the future of Iran, which was passed apparently by 99%, 98% of uh, Iranian population. This is a kind of historical fact that is not known, unfortunately. At that time, all the Kurds boycotted this referendum. There was a boycott, official boycott. That's what the Kurdish parties asked for and the population more or less followed. So yeah. the Islamic Republic that came to existence was actually decided by people who are not who are not Kurds, like non-Kurds. Like probably some Kurdish people, especially those in southern provinces of Rosh Halak, like in Kermanshah, Ilam, coming from the Shia background, they voted for Islamic Republic. But the politically identified Kurds, politically motivated Kurds, they did not vote. They boycotted this referendum. So we see this uh, rejection, this refusal against the rise of this Islamic regime in Iran. And the fight was, of course, for Kurdish autonomy, of course, for democracy, but also against this Islamization of the political system of Iran, something that the revolution, nobody in the, could see that, was abducted by this Rouhaniyat, by this cleric elite of the rising Islamic regime. And it's very interesting that one of the main Kurdish clerics in Mahabad, Shiri was actually promoting secular ideas and he was closer to actually to the leftist party, to Komala, than even to traditionally nationalist Kurdistan Democratic Party. So the fight was not for this religious identity. The fight was for uh, preserving secular rule in the country. In addition to the Kurds who boycotted that referendum, so did uh, a lot of other political groups, mainly secular groups, the leftists. They did not find that referendum legitimate. In your piece in Merib, you discuss how the post-revolutionary regime in Iran excluded Sunnis in the new constitution and the political structure, and concurrently used religious sectarianism to drive a wedge among Kurds in such a way that most of the Shia Kurds living in Kermanshah and Ilam provinces were less active in the revolt against the Islamic Republic in early stages. Can you explain what these exclusions entail for Sunnis in general, 
and Sunni courts in particular in terms of their rights as Iranian citizens. Tell us how the regime used this Sunni-Shia binary that is so popular these days among uh, some analysts in its campaign to quash unrest in the Kurdish region. Historically speaking, the Kurdish nationalist movement kind of territorially belonged to the northern parts of Rojalat, to the southern parts of the western Azerbaijan province, areas close to Mahabad, and later to Kurdistan province, Sanandaj, Merivan, Banas, Akkuz, and not so popular in the southern parts of Rojalat where the majority are Shia. And we also have Ahl Haqiyah Hassan, considerable percentage of the people, the Kurdish population in the Kermansha province, they're Ahl Haqiyah Hassan. So in those areas, we can't see this Kurdish nationalist sentiments being built up before the revolution. And this binary that you mentioned, the Sunni Shia, kind of exists between southern parts of Rojalat and northern parts, where the northern parts is mainly Sunni Shafi'i. But we also have uh, Shia courts in the Kurdistan province, like in Bijar, Gorva, cities, in western Azerbaijan, maybe in Tikab and Sayinkhala cities, we have Shia courts. But the main divide was between the two provinces of Kermansha and Ilam, with the Kurds in, in the provinces of Kurdistan and western Azerbaijan. But this note that in Kermansha, we have Sunni Kurds in Hevraman, in Pave and Juanro. So the Kurdish uprising in the aftermath of the revolution took place mainly in those Sunni populated Kurdish cities, like in Sanandaj, Meriwan, Mahabad, and other cities that I mentioned. And Shia Kurds, they did not participate in this uh, uprising, as you said. And the very nature of the raising religious regime was kind of uh, welcoming this Shia identity of the Kurds in those parts. And because uh, at that time, like during the early years of the revolution, the emphasis was mainly on the Shia identity, and we see the coming back of the Persian identity much later in the Islamic Republic of Iran, this Shia identity was kind of more powerful than the Kurdish identity for most of the Kurds in those parts. And the very issue that, as you mentioned, that in the newly approved constitution of the Islamic regime, Sunnis were basically deprived from many rights from being elected, from being represented in many parts of the newly established institutions of the state, they did not get any positions. So Shia courts, they basically became more powerful in the regime and the regimes and institutions in different parts of Kurdistan, especially in Sanandaj, Kamyaran, in other parts. And they, uh, the Shia courts, became the face of the regime in those parts. Last in the northern parts, in Mahabad, Sakas, Burmia, and other parts. So uh, we see this uh, regime's attempt to, as you said, to basically use this Sunni-Shia binary to divide the Kurdish population. Let's turn to the economy of the Kurdish region. I think this is a pivotal issue. The region's economy was traditionally based on agriculture and animal 
husbandry in rural areas and commerce in the urban centers, as you point out. In your articles, you cite the limited number of industrial sites and their locations along the outer edge of uh, Kurdish provinces as evidence for long-term policies of de-development in Rojalat by the central state and an economy based on Iran's security and military. Can you talk about those policies and their impact on the population and the labor force in Kurdistan? Well, in my university years in Iran, I did my first research about the balance of industrial development uh, in Kurdistan, especially in the Kurdistan province, and how the government, central government's uh, investment in Kurdistan is taking place. And at that time, I found out by looking at different factors, different parameters, that most of the industrial sites are actually located quite close to the border cities, the border areas of the Kurdistan province where actually Shia Kurds are living. The population is mainly Kurdish Shia. So in the cities of Qurwa and Bijar mainly. And from that time, it was a very important question for me to see how the economy of Kurdistan is taking shape by the ways in which the state invests or proposes development projects in the region. And in many parts of Kurdistan, we see this tremendous number of unemployed young people who have to leave their cities, their villages, to go to different parts of Iran, to the southern parts, to in oil fields, to many brick factories called Kurakhana, brutal places of exploitation of people's labor, in many parts of Iran, central parts of Iran, especially in, in bazaars, markets for fruits, we can see, like I personally, during the time that I was living in Iran, most of those places where they were selling tarabar, like fruits and vegetables, we know all of those who were working there because they were Kurdish from different cities of Kurdistan. And many construction sites, Kurdish youth who were working in different parts of Iran. So we see this de-development policies of the regime in the way that it drives the Kurdish youth to find their sources of livelihood in other parts of Iran. So in Iran, in general, we cannot talk about this advanced level of industrialization and except for the oil industry in other areas, these industries are kind of very much located in the central provinces. But in Kurdistan, especially with the securitization and militarization of the region, it was basically, I think, even speaking in economic terms, in business terms, it was a risk for any sort of investment in that region while a political unrest was uh, taking place, was uh, ongoing. The development had some uh, reasons behind it, as I said, this political situation of Kurdistan, but also some very intentional politics of the regime by driving out the Kurdish youth from that region and taking them to other parts of Iran and not giving the Kurds these sources of livelihood in their own places of living, their own villages, their own cities. By mid-2000s, we see that a new economy, which is a border market, rising in Kurdistan, 
that of course we can talk about that and how how this is kind of taking a toll on uh, the Kurdish youth that they're basically trying to survive. Tell us about this trade at the border between the Kurdish region in Iran and the one in Iraq. Who is benefiting from it and how is it further marginalizing the poor, as you mentioned in your article? And there is this feature about it, a new form of labor called kolbari or being a porter. Explain to us how this whole thing was set up and what it entails. Well, the proximity of some of the cities of Roshala to Iraqi Kurdistan to Bashur, traditionally it was like a market for smuggled goods that are coming from Iraq to Iran or from Iran going back to Iraq. And uh, it was taking place. It was not a phenomenon that happened in the last decade or so. There was some sort of kachab or smuggling business uh, border market before. But since uh, we can say mid-2000s, there was an expanding market for smuggled goods and for this border market to flourish. There are many reasons behind that. Some of them could be the early stages of sanctions against Iran, where people trying to get uh, many goods from outside of Iran and this border market, not just in Kurdistan, but also in other parts of Iran and even in, in the Gulf. This smuggling business was one way for Iranians to find goods and uh, to sell them in other parts of the country. But in Kurdistan, I think this uh, border market was more about bringing in those goods that are kind of illegal. So alcohol, cigarettes, and some other goods that uh, are not allowed in Iran because it might basically challenge the Iranian manufacturing system and also a lot of uh, cosmetics that were also not produced in Iran and were not uh, brought in because of Islamic issues. And uh, these markets, as I said, in mid-2000s expanded every parts of this border region, both with Turkey and within Iraq. We see this uh, explosion of different centers, different city malls, like uh, shopping places where these goods were sold to both the Kurds and also to the people who were taking them to the central parts of Iran, to Tehran, let's say. And the main work of this market was done by a group of people, a big group of people, mainly youth, that were called Kolber. And Kolber is basically the porter, someone who is carrying these goods along uh, these borders of Iran and Iraq in this mountainous train, taking them from some locations in the border sides of Iraq to some villages or cities in the Iranian side. To be clear, this is a treacherous train. You're in mountainous region. The temperatures could be quite brutal. It could be very cold, snow. And then on top of it, they have to carry these heavy loads on their back. Also, a lot of minefields left from the Iran-Iraq war. And as you said, this train could be very, very dangerous for all of those youth many of them like 16 17 years old the statistics that are coming just so 
frightening how many teenagers are trying to make some money because of this border market and using this border market. The main problem, the main obstacle for coal bears were not just the minefields, just the mountainous train, but uh, Iranian border guards who regularly would shot and kill these coal bears. And in many parts, the Iranian regime justifying that in terms of the border control and in terms of protection of the integrity of Iran's territory, but this is not the case. And uh, in many parts, there is a crop system of control, but just these uh, irregularities in the border. So as I said, it's the, this border market provided some opportunities for this youth to find alternative sources of livelihood while there is nothing in terms of industry, in terms of a market in the region to recruit them. And many of them, they're in very young ages. They don't have experience in this mountainous areas. And as, as you said, they're carrying these heavy loads of goods and they're being shot by border guards. And as I said, most of the times, these border guards, they are doing it intentionally. And while this regime of uh, border control is very much corrupt, and uh, we know there are many news reports that there is some sort of management by uh, by the government that does not approve this free way of bringing goods, and if it's not controlled, you have to pay a price for that. And as far as I know, this form of labor called Bari, these border porters, it's not illegal actually, but border guards randomly shoot at uh, anyone crossing the border without considering the social and economic life and conditions in which these people are in. Many studies have been done about Kolberi and there are some particular human rights groups that are working with Kolbers, with these porters, and there are some scholars, for example, there was an article particularly talking about Kolberi and talking about the economy of Roshalat and this everyday survival situation as apartheid economy. You were suggesting that there are groups uh, with connections to the centers of power that sort of control these routes for goods to be brought into Iran from uh, from uh, Iraq, uh, I mean from Kurdistan uh, in Iraq. And then if there are people who are not part of their plans, they get shot at. Is that what's happening? I think the, uh, maybe it's not an official policy. It's not something coming from central government, from Tehran. But in the region, there is some sort of a regime of control that oversees this border market. I don't think it is possible that all of those peoples, all of those malls in Kurdistan continue to flourish, continue to sell all of those smuggled goods without some parts of the local government, the, the people appointed by the regime, some parts of the the military uh, apparatus of the regime active in those parts, in those border parts that are not benefiting from this uh, market. But those who are being uh, exploited, those who are doing the most precious and the most difficult part of the, the work, there are these young men who are carrying goods 
on their backs. And this is because the lack of opportunities in Kurdistan for these people to find other sources of income. Because there is no control and uh, there is no attention to what's happening to this Kurdish youth. Many people starting this, uh, this, this work in a very, very early ages. We have people, we have coal bears who were shot dead and they are 14 years old, 15 years old. We have so many young quarters uh, that from this very early ages, they take this very risky business just to provide some food, some livelihood for their families. This is the reality. I don't believe that the government in the cities are not kind of collaborating with some major people who are part of this border market. Let's talk about today's uh, Rojalat, Kurdistan. And in terms of activism there, in terms of political tendencies, you say that during the presidency of Mohammad Khatami, that was from 1997 to 2005, there's another group of actors that sort of emerge in Rojalat, a class of educated middle-class men and women, some of whom held administrative ties to the government. They promoted the politics of change regarding the Kurds that was based on reforms and civic engagement with the Iranian government. You can tell us what happened to uh, that strategy. At the same time, almost concurrently by the late 1990s, we see the emergence of a new force in Iranian Kurdistan, uh, Rojalat, and that's the influence of PKK. The new protagonist consisted primarily of leftist Kurdish students, activists, and intellectuals inside Iran who were critical of the Kurdish Democratic Party and Komala, the older political parties, now mostly in exile, mostly based in Iraqi Kurdistan. These activists and intellectuals were looking for an alternative. And you say that they were eventually organized into a political party called the Kurdistan Free Life Party, Pejak. This happened in 2004. Tell us about Pejak, its political strategy and its base of support and perhaps its relationship to PKK. Can you talk about these two tendencies? Yeah, sure. After the Iranian revolution in 1979, we see this widespread military security campaign against uh, any elements of Kurdish opposition remaining in Iran, mass arrests, executions, and most of the Kurdish parties and groups and uh, activists, they leave Iran, they go to the mountains, they go to Iraqi Kurdistan, and later resettle in different camps in, in Bashur, Iraqi Kurdistan. And as you said, many go on exile. And those remaining in Iran, they had to stay quiet. And there was a time that, especially after the assassination of Dr. Abrahman Qasem Lu in 1988 in Vienna and Austria by the Islamic uh, public assassins, terrorists, we see this uh, kind of silence in Kurdistan, this uh, lack of political activism, social and political life. After that, we see some uprisings in some cities of Kurdistan. In Mahabad, there was an incident with Shwana Qadri, and there was uh, some other uh, incidents in other uh, cities of Kurdistan. 
after the assassination of Qasem Lu and then after the assassination of Dr. Shalaf Kandi, people kind of reacted to these assassinations. There were daily boycott, daily strikes. For example, when I was in Mahaba during those years, people shut down the whole city for a day in protest of these assassinations. So we see some very momentous uh, events in Kurdistan, but there is no mass or a visible political movement in Kurdistan. Until 1999, when the leader of the PKK, Abdullah Ocalan, was abducted on February 15. And after that, every cities in Kurdistan, they started the demonstrations, also in Tehran, I guess there was also one in Tabriz, if I'm not mistaken. People came to the streets. The objective was basically to condemn this abduction. It was about the Kurdish cause in some other country, not Iran. So the regime was also okay with it for the first actions or second ones. But then in Sanandaj, in one of the actions, one of the last actions, the regime committed a massacre and killed tens of protesters. And during that time, I was in Tehran, and uh, we were part of the student uh, movement that was just basically trying to benefit from the relative opening after the coming to power of Mohammed Khatami, as you said. So with Mohammed Khatami and with the uh, reformists in power, there were some openings. And Ojalan's abduction and the protests against that were kind of the basis of a revival in Kurdistan and a new polity was about to emerge in Kurdistan. Before that, let me just also say that, that this Kurdish, the new Kurdish generations, the new Kurdish intellectuals, the students, that I was also part of that, they were also very much frustrated and disappointed by the main Kurdish opposition parties by Democrat, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and the Komala and their inactivity in Kurdistan and Iran and lack of any sort of proposal for what they want to do. They were looking for an alternative. So during this reformist opening in Iran and this uh, very major event that affected every Kurd all over the world, the abduction of Ojalan, the alternative basically came up to be the PKK. And many uh, young people, many young students joined the PKK and the PKK started to mobilize the Kurdish people in Iran around the same political program that they were following at that time. And it was kind of an anti-colonial, independent Kurdistan. And as I mentioned at the beginning, a new language, a new terminology, a new politics. And in 2004, we see the rise of the establishment of the Party of Free Life of Kurdistan, Partia Jana Azada Kurdistan, Pejak, and the PKK becomes an actor in the politics of the Kurdish people in Iran. And many of those who were looking for that alternative joined this uh, movement, this group. For kind of a background, I could say that Pejak emerged as a need, as an exploration by the Kurdish youth, the new generation of Kurdish youth that went through the Iran-Iraq war, the military campaign of the Iranian regime against the Kurds in Iran, 
the assassinations of Qasim Lu and Sharaf Kandi and the years of Kurdish struggle without getting to any end. And they were looking for something that provides them with this paradigm, with this polity that is not just about Iran, but also about all parts of Kurdistan. And the PKK was that political power that united the Kurds in Mahabad, in Sanandaj, Kurdish students in Tehran and Tabriz, to those in Erbil, in Istanbul, in Diyarbakir, and everywhere, all over Kurdistan and the world, actually. Also bringing in diaspora, and as I said, the main and the first Kurdish uh, satellite TV was established by the PKK in Europe in 1995, and it had a huge effect in popularizing the PKK ideology in all parts of Kurdistan. It seems like there's also another group of activists who are on a different track. They're basically pursuing a more of a reformist strategy still in Kurdistan. Or they are the people who used to pursue a reformist strategy. Maybe they have changed course by now. In other words, you're dealing with Pejak, who has resorted to arms confrontation in addition to organizing at the local level. But there is another group who is obviously not thinking that armed struggle is necessarily the best way to go about making a change in Iran. So these two tendencies live side by side. They do seem to pursue different strategies. Yes, so Pajak was that alternative for this political opposition against the Iranian regime, but also speaking to the Kurdish identity and unifying the Kurds in all parts of Kurdistan under the same political strategy. So it was one emerging political force in Rotalat. The other one, as you mentioned, during that rule of uh, Muhammad Khatami and reformists in Tehran, many newspapers, many publications uh, started coming out. And in Kurdistan, it was also the case. We had many bilingual Kurdish-Farsi publications and different student groups in different universities all over Iran. They had their own publications. We at this university in Tehran, Allameh, we had our own publications, our own groups. Every day we had these political discussions with groups, different gatherings, a lot of meetings, and a lot of working with the reformist activists in Tehran. So the reformists in power in Iran was kind of revitalizing not only the Kurdish political movement, but also a kind of bringing together Kurds with other activists trying to change this uh, very rigid and conservative Islamic regime in Iran. For example, we worked with many reformist activists in Tehran in different universities to establish different associations, publications, different rallies, a lot of meetings in the university. And it was not just about the Kurdish issue or the Kurdish political rights. It was also about... Iran. It was also about future of this country and making changes. So many Kurdish activists at that time became part of this reformist movement and many of them, they did not want to be affiliated with the Kurdish political parties, including Pejak, and not just the traditional ones. They had also some connections with the government. They were public employees of the state, 
or working in universities, some intellectual and writers and journalists among this group of people came out. They became very influential in the politics of Kurdistan. And as you know, in the sixth uh, assembly of the Iranian parliament, there was a very important presence of Kurdish MPs who were supportive of the reformist movement. So we see this emergence, we see the rising of this group of people who belong to the reformist movement in Iran, and they became very influential. But uh, they could not become this political block, this power block, to make the change that everyone wanted for, because the political system of Iran, as we saw, did not allow this reformist movement to go much further. And also their social and economic basis and their insistence to stay away from Kurdish political parties. All of that, all of these factors were causing this group to not bring the change that people wanted. But they are still there and they are still very much uh, active. And in many cases, the regime tolerates them. But we see a lot of cases of arrests of people getting punished, persecuted. For example, Mohammad Sadiq Abudman was one of the very important people in this group of Kurdish reformists who was the president of very well-known Kurdish human rights organization who was arrested for years, but he's still in Iran. And there are many journalists, many different activists in different areas who are still in Iran, but the regime frequently arrests them, punishes them, and persecutes them. The last example was Zahra Muhammadi, who was basically a Kurdish teacher, teaching, trying to teach Kurdish to her students. And she was active in different grassroots organizations, in different NGOs around environmental issues, around poverty, but they arrested her and she has been in jail since 2018. On that note, Sardar, in your article, you refer to a July 2019 report by the United Nations on the situation of human rights in Iran that states that nearly half of Iran's political prisoners are ethnic Kurds, while Kurdish people make up just 10 to 15 percent of Iran's population. The report states that ethnic Kurds constitute a disproportionately high number of those that receive the death penalty and are executed. This is a quote from the report. We are in 2021 now. What is the current state of human rights in Kurdistan? Why are so many Kurds being targeted by the regime's security and intelligence services and its judiciary? As you said in this report, there are a lot of different reports, not just international human rights organizations, in this case, the United Nations, but also some local local groups have uh, some very detailed uh, reports as we mentioned the issue with colbert there's a website colbert news that constantly provides uh, statistics of uh, colbert being shot all of these human rights violations in that area in kurdistan but uh, it is ongoing in 2021 and with the state that the iranian regime is in and the Kurdish movement for, for federalism, for self-determination, whatever you name it, it's not so much separated from the 2000s, the 1990s, and the 1980s, to be honest. 
And I think uh, the Iranian regime is more in fear and in this denial that any sort of responding to the Kurdish grievances of strong people, the Kurdish people and also other excluded and marginalized people based on their national background or religious background or any other groups that are not part of the identity, ideal group of people that uh, the Islamic Republic wants them. They are being persecuted. There are many cases of executions we have been hearing. And Kurds are, one could say, the most politically active group of people who are still part of an ongoing rebellion against the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran since its establishment. They are very much active in all parts of Kurdistan. They have military groups, they have defense forces, and in terms of mass media, they have many mediums in their hands. And Kurds probably are the main group in Iran who have preserved their oppositional character against this Islamic regime since its establishment. So of course they are afraid of the Kurds. Of course they oppress them, they kill them. Of course they are not hesitant to find an opportunity to to basically dismantle and to basically destroy what the Kurds are achieving. Many of these NGOs, grassroots groups that are active in Iran are being shut down. And as you mentioned, and as I said, many activists are being jailed. So this suppression is ongoing. And mm. the government, this Islamic regime, finds the Kurdish people their natural enemy. Especially yeah. right now that there are fears that uh, there is an upcoming war between Iran and the Western powers, especially the United States. They always see the Kurds as uh, an element of animosity, if it makes sense. A part of the enemy who tries to invade Iran and uh, dismantle Iran and separate different parts of Iran and disintegrate this country. I think this is an ongoing process and it is not just about this year or last year or the year before. In November 2019, there were nationwide protests that were sparked by an increase in fuel prices in Iran. But they went beyond the issue of fuel price and called for social justice and political change inside Iran. How extensive were these protests in um, cities of Rojalat, the Kurdish region of Iran? And what does that tell us in terms of the future protests or unrest in Kurdistan or Rojalat? So as you know, in 2009, it was uh, the Green Movement in, in Iran, and we had some other protests in the years after that the Kurds did not particularly participate. But the 2019 protests, they were kind of different. And after imposing sanctions on Iran, the economic situation tremendously affected. The people of Iran, they paid for that, especially the poor paid for the sanctions in most cases, in most part. And you know that the prices of the essential goods, essential food skyrocketed. So in terms of economy, people were desperate. People, doesn't matter in Kurdistan or in Tehran or in Khuzestan, 
or any part of Iran, they were all affected. So, of course, when the protests started against uh, against the rise of fuel prices, all of other issues, the misery that they have been through in those last uh, few years after the sanctions, they all came up. And the Kurdish people, they saw that this is a common issue, a common pain. It was no longer about, it was not about just about political freedom in a way that it was portrayed by protesters, activists in central parts of Iran, especially in Tehran. The issue was very much about the periphery, those who had been extra, extra marginalized, extra excluded, those who were extremely impoverished, who got nothing from all of those resources that were available for years and years in Iran and established this regime and its military apparatuses and all of its uh, power that kind of intervening in all parts of the region. People were fed up with that. And it, it didn't matter if you're Kurdish or Persian or Azeri Turk. I think the issue was common. Of course, they participated and many people died, I think, in these protests uh, in Kurdish cities. So one of the main differences, referring to your question, one of the main changes in this recent protest was that there is a common issue, that people are basically fed up with the system, and they want they want change. And this change must immediately translate into making their life better, bring them out of their misery, their empowerment, and then probably talking about political freedom, about social freedom, and what kind of future for Iran could be envisioned as part of all of the discussions. But the base is right now very much common between everyone. Sardar Sadi is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Toronto and the host and producer of the Kurdish Edition podcast. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir. You can read Sardar Sadi's article titled The New Wave of Politics in the Struggle for Self-Determination in Rojalat online at Middle East Research and Information Project Merip.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. <laughs>